Welcome to the first episode of Multilanguish, the podcast for anyone curious about language and all the weird and fantastic ways language connects us all. I'm executive producer Jen Jordan. Over the five episodes of this first season, we'll explore unsolved language mysteries, linguistic relativity, travel advice, and sexy accents. But in today's episode, we're talking about robots. More specifically, we're talking artificial intelligence, or AI. We often joke about our robot overlords becoming sentient, but the reality is we teach robots everything they know. This includes all of our ingrained language biases, and when this highly human construct is fed into the sharp contrast of artificial intelligence and it's spit back out at us, the results can be, well, disturbing and revelatory. Later on in the episode, the whole team will share what they learned this week. But first, here to tell us more about these sexist robots is producer Thomas Moore Devlin, joined by senior producer Dylan Lyons. Let's get into it. Alexa, are you a robot? I like to imagine myself a bit like an aurora borealis, a surge of charged multicolored photons dancing through the atmosphere. Mostly, though, I am just Alexa. That's weird. That was deep. Um, Alexa, who made you? A team of inventors at Amazon created me. Alexa, how do you say they are a doctor in Spanish? They are a doctor in Spanish is... Son un médico. They're just getting rid of the pronoun. So they're saying our doctor? But yeah. But they are saying un médico. That's Assuming true. It's male. Instead of yeah. un med- so that proves the point that I was making. Excellent. Good point, Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> so Thomas, what made you want to dig into the topic of sexist robots? So artificial intelligence. What's the biggest thing you think of when you think of the hazards of artificial intelligence? World domination? Yes. But there are also other issues besides. So obviously the first thing we think of artificial intelligence, we think like HAL from uh, Space Odyssey or what? what the Disney I- Channel original movie Smart House. Of my course. favorite. I think of C-3PO. Uh, all right. Well, that's like he's the nice nicest possible <laughs> robot. He's a nice guy. He's yeah. Super useful. It's a nice robot. I don't know. Smart House. Was that when like the house was trying to take over for the mom who died? Yes. But this is, on, this is for children? Yeah. Teenagers, maybe? Preteens? Like preteens. It was scary, though. The house like it was. It took like, over and was like, I'm in charge. Yeah. It locked them all in. <laughs> and okay. so that was the earliest Alexa. If you think about it. All right. So I was interested in artificial intelligence, and because we're a language company, I was interested in how artificial intelligence and language interact. So I wanted to talk to someone who worked at Babbel who kind of had experience with that. So I talked to Kate McCurdy. Kate McCurdy, and through Friday of this week, I'm a senior computational linguistics engineer in Babbel's Berlin office. So I sat down with Kate just because she had an interest in artificial intelligence and how it interacts with language, but she also kind of not specializes because she does a lot of work because like at a language learning app, you want to explore all the ways that technology and language intersect. But one of her specialties was focusing on this idea that there is bias that is baked in to artificial intelligence. Interesting. Yeah. So again, 
sometimes you think artificial intelligence. It's a robot. It doesn't have feelings, so it can't have biases because it's all just like numbers packed in. But apparently, that's not true. And so, the reason why that is is because the way we make it kind of bakes in bias to these. So, because machines. it's made by humans who are biased, sexist, racist, whatever they happen to be, that translates into the machine. Yeah. And not necessarily consciously. It's not like there are engineers who are like, well, I hate women, <laughs> so I'm going to make this robot also hate women. But that has a lot to do with how we now make artificial intelligence. So the first thing to understand is that there are two basic schools of thought having to do with how to make a computer think. It's, it's generally kind of acknowledged in the history of artificial intelligence, and especially with respect to the history of natural language processing. First, all starting from the premise that, um, you know, you can successfully model uh, something like language in computers, right? You have some different camps and they might roughly be divided into uh, this sort of symbolic manipulation approach that could be described as like good old fashioned AI. Much in the same way that when you're learning a second language, I mean, as a, as a native speaker of a language, I don't really think about what the rules are in English, say, for plurals or like, when do I voice this sound and not this other sound? I just know them. Good old-fashioned AI, when she said that at first, I was like, that's a kind of funny term that she probably made up. But it turns out it's actually this term that's used by like anyone who works in artificial intelligence to describe the slightly older school of thought about the best way to teach computers, which is basically you're putting in rule after rule after rule, and then it just follows those instructions. Do either of you have experience with like coding? A little bit. I mean, no. very early days, like yeah. this is a header and this is how it should look, and like denoting all the styling. But Only on MySpace. I'm guessing yeah. AI is a little bit more complex than headers and yeah. links. With good old-fashioned AI, well, it was basically like a lot longer because you had to have so many more instructions. So... For example, like the earliest code that anyone does, no matter what code programming language they're doing, is hello world, where they basically put in a rule, and then when that something happens, it produces hello world, and that's the first thing. If you want to make a really advanced robot, then you have to make a lot of rules and have thousands and thousands of lines of code, and you're teaching it exactly what to do, and it can really, in that way, only be as smart as the programmer. But it doesn't allow for the kinds of things like like we were talking to Alexa earlier. It doesn't allow for... It's not improvisation because everything is still coded into the AI, but I don't know. I guess I'm trying to like say it doesn't It doesn't allow for like more interactive ability, basically, right? Yeah. I mean, Alexa is probably more good old-fashioned AI than we would think because even though it seems like she's... Or it, because they don't actually have gender, it's very advanced... They don't actually have there are brains. Prompts. There are prompts for what she's picking up on what you're asking. Yeah, you I actually talked to Kate a little bit about this whole experience of like, is the artificial intelligence that we interact with on a daily basis as advanced as we tout it being? Yeah, it's it's sort of it's an interesting thing. There's a lot of layers of work that go into designing a good conversational experience, um, and there's a lot of layers of work that have to be sort of executed 
well to make it feel like it's done well. And I'd say, you know, to the extent that there are people who have that experience and feel that it works well, you know, like then it's a quite a success. But we should be aware that it's a pretty carefully curated um, success. Right. <laughs> right. So, like, for example, I mean, I think. I can't remember whether it was Microsoft or Apple, but there was, you know, reports like they hire comedians to write the joke dialogue lines, for example. <laughs> now, I know it's unbelievable to think that a real comedian wrote the terrible jokes that Alexa tells. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> but, like, it's not coming up with those jokes out of nowhere. And most of what you're interacting is going to be within a set of scripts that it's already been taught. And when you go outside of those parameters, that's when Alexa will say something like, hmm, I don't know that one. And it feels more natural than like you'd expect robots of the old days to be where we just say like error cannot compute. <laughs> <laughs> cannot compute. But it is very much just like a very set system where it knows certain things and it doesn't know other things. And it's not really actively learning, at least the Alexas that we interact with, but they're working on making it more advanced. Right. So eventually it would learn more about you and be able to tailor its responses more to like your words or your accent or the way you speak. But yeah, it doesn't do that yet. Yeah, that would probably be Amazon's goal in the long run. Right now it's more, all of that work is done in a lab and they're trying to teach it, but the product that's put out is very like set in stone. So that's good old fashioned AI. Yeah. But the second kind of AI is the one that is more popular these days because it's shown a lot more promise and we don't know exactly how much promise it will show in the long run but for now it's definitely the most exciting so i talked to kate about that the one approach the the sort of connectionist or neural network approach to computation is kind of like trying to model getting a computer to understand language in some loose approximation of how we think a child does or it, where in the sense where you don't have all this sense of structure or rules per se, you just have a lot of data. And it's up to the this internal, you know, it's up to this kind of very, very loosely specified, powerful computational learning mechanism to come up with the uh, structure out of it. So Kate, there was time with the neural network approach, which is just the very exciting, like, robots learning on their own in a way. You say exciting. I think this is the robot that's going to kill us, right? I mean, in that idea that, like, robots are going to take over the world, this would be the kind of robot. Because gold-fashioned AI, we have pretty much most control over, whereas this, less control. We don't really know what's happening. What happens is, like a baby learning language, you just kind of present it with a bunch of information, and then it can extrapolate from there. I was thinking with humans, do any of you know the WUG test? The WUG test? The WUG test. It's this famous linguistic experiment which kind of proved how babies can extrapolate information. So they took some babies with some basic language skills. I guess they're tots at that point. <laughs> and they showed them this little picture that looked like a bird and said, this is a WUG. And then they learned it was a WUG. And then they brought out one with multiple of the same image and asked them, like, what is here? And they were able to fill in that it was WUGs. So even though they'd never heard this word before, they were able to use information from other plurals that they knew and then add to it. So mm. new works. Interesting. So this is kind of the same thing that they want to do with this neural network approach where you can feed it a bunch of information and then it can start making connections that aren't necessarily... Explicitly stated, basically. Yeah. yeah. 
So at first it'll be really dumb and it needs like human guidance to kind of start it on the root, but eventually it will just take in all of this data and then create an intelligence. So at least for now, robots could be as smart as babies. Yeah, at least as smart as babies, maybe. And then eventually as smart as adults. <laughs> Smarter than all of us. <laughs> yeah, or that, yeah. It's a little terrifying, but also cool. Yeah. The neural network approach is taking all this data, and it's great, people love it, but this is where the bias comes in. Because I'll use an example of something that everyone uses pretty regularly, which is Google Translate. Because Google Translate learns through taking in a bunch of data and trying to find the most likely translation of a statement. So when you put in hello and want to translate into Spanish, it will try to match it with what it already knows and it will translate it into hola. And Google Translate, you can also give feedback. I'm pretty sure you can still give feedback yeah. where it'd be like, suggests a translation or something. So it's taking in more data, but most of what it's doing is just going through internet resources and information to create language matching. But there was a problem which was not everything translates perfectly well. The most famous example was when you wanted to translate the language Turkish. So grammatical gender exists in a few different ways. It's, so the most, like in Spanish, you'll have la mesa, and that's the table, it's feminine, or you'll have el burro, the donkey, it's male. Right. And so that's grammatical gender. Even though it doesn't necessarily directly correlate, like you don't think a table is necessarily more female than male, it exists and it's there. English does not have that on nouns or anything, but it does have grammatical gender on pronouns because we have he, she, they, etc. But there are some languages that don't have that at all. So in Turkish, you just have o and the pronoun, it works for anyone. So you would say O oh, as if you'd say he or she or it. It's all the same word and all means vaguely the same singular pronoun. Yeah. Interesting. And if you put in O, oh, at least with Google Translate as it was, it would have to choose which way it wants to translate that. It's going to find the most likely translation, not necessarily the translation. Google Translate, you put in O, oh, it goes through, it tries to find the most likely translation. And if you put in a phrase like, oh, bir doctor, I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. I don't speak <laughs> Turkish. But what that basically would mean when you translate it, if you speak to like an actual person who's bilingual, they'd say he or she is a doctor. But Google's just trying to find the quickest translation, just one, and it translates it as he is a doctor. But if you put in something else that says means he or she is a nurse, it will translate that as she is a nurse because the data that it's pulling from says that it's more likely for the sentence to say he is a doctor than she is a doctor. So is it basically pulling from like the body of writing on the internet? Yeah, it's got a few different sources. I mean, Google has control over everything. Right. <laughs> All, every aspect of our lives. But it just needs to make this choice as quickly as possible. And so it makes that choice without so any guidance. It's fed by human input, but it's making decisions based on the amount and volume and like quality of input that's being given. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's not that different, again, from how humans kind of get their own 
input where they're more likely. I mean, there's the famous joke about, um, I don't even know, what's the joke? It's like a, a father and son get in a car crash, the father dies, right. and then the son is put in surgery, and then the doctor says, I can't operate on this man, he's my son. And then the point is like, you're supposed to like not understand it. And then it's like, how is that possible? And then you're like, oh, it's the doctor's a woman. Yeah. It's, so, uh, it really lands a lot differently now. These times. Yeah, it does yeah. a lot differently. When I was a child, I think it blew my mind slightly more than it does now, because now I'd just be like, oh, that's stupid. But <laughs> when you're just taught these certain schemata, you these certain shortcuts in your brain of like what things should be, you just start making these connections that aren't necessarily true. But then that can lead to issues. Like Tay.io, right? No, Tay.ai. What is that? Tay.ai was this experiment that Microsoft put on to try to make a Twitter bot that could talk to people. Oh, no. And they, yeah, you can guess where this is going already. <laughs> so it started out with this basic amount of information, and it was just supposed to be able to respond to people when they tweeted at it, and then it would take in that information that it was being tweeted at about, and then integrate that into its lexicon and how it works. And it started out fine. People tweeted at it. It would say, like, hello, my name is Tay, and things like that. But then, slowly, over the course of less than 24 hours, it became racist and sexist and a conspiracy theorist about lots of things. Oh, boy. And just saying to kill certain groups of people. Yikes. And so that's a good example of just... That's a really extreme example of how quickly, if you have a bad data set, things can go horribly, horribly wrong. Just exponentially racist and terrible yeah like, and like that's exact that's easy to like see and spot because it's just there and i feel like twitter is a particularly yeah i mean microsoft should have known better yeah but <laughs> a rough place to start and so like things like that we are like that's not great but other times it can be less noticeable actually for the next example, I have a script that I'm going to send both of you because Facebook created these two bots so that they could talk to each other. And then they started inventing their own language just based off of feeding into each other. So wait, so they gave them these two bots, they gave them like, I'm assuming some vocabulary, but then they yeah. were, then they started to talk to each other. Yeah. Facebook wanted to create these AI bots that were good at like making exchanges with each other so that they could talk and then they would adjust their language to make the most efficient talking possible. I remember hearing about this and then they had to shut it down. Yeah, it had to be shut down because they looked into like what the bots were saying to each other and like I said, I'll send you both the script and oh. Dylan, you'll be Bob, one of the bot names and Jen, you'll be Alice because this episode's all about gender. <laughs> Okay. Whenever you're ready. Should I just start? Bob. Do, okay. Should I do a robot voice? I'm going to do a robot voice. All right. Oh, don't do a robot voice. Don't do a robot voice. Do like voice. a light robot voice. Okay. I can, I, I, everything else, dot, 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 dot. 
balls have zero to me, 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 to you, I, everything else, dot, 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 dot. Balls have a ball to me, to me, to me, to me, to me, to me, to me. I, I, can, I, 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 everything else, dot, 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 All right. So you get the picture. I feel like this is really romantic, actually. It's beautiful. Yeah, Bob and Alice, a love story. Generations. So, obviously, they completely went off the rails, and they just... I mean, this might be a more efficient way of communication. Maybe we should always speak like this, but... I don't know. And also it's interesting because Bob and Alice clearly have different styles because Bob uses all the dots, whereas Alice uses to me, to me, to me, to me, to me. All the dots make me feel like I'm texting with one of my parents. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. baby boomer texting problems. Filled with a sense of apprehension. <laughs> so when you lock two bots in a room, this is what apparently happens. It kind of reminds me of like, have you ever seen that YouTube video of twins talking to each other when they're babies? Oh, no. Yeah. And like, they're like making baby noises, but they're talking back and forth. And so there's this idea. Like their twin language. Yeah, twin language, which is like kind of a real phenomenon where twins, when they're babies, can like learn to talk to each other, not using the language around them, but making up their own language. But the scary thing is with robots, we can't understand it. And yeah, that's where it gets problematic. I mean, we can't understand babies either. <laughs> that's also problematic. Eventually they grow. <laughs> Same thing. Because they're exposed to outside data sets, they learn better. Whereas these two did not. But yeah, we don't really understand artificial intelligence. And a lot of the problem, as mentioned with these neural networking things, is that it's kind of called like a black box. Because with good old-fashioned AI, you can see exactly what's happening, what's being adjusted, how you can find a line of code and be like, this is why it's doing what it is. Whereas the neural network approach, it's learning on its own. It's slowly becoming sentient. It's going to kill us all. Creepy. And we have no idea what's going on inside. It makes its own little adjustments and we just can't really figure out necessarily why, especially when it's involving massive data sets. So are there solutions to this problem of bias? Hopefully. The problem right now is that because it's a black box, we really only know things when it becomes apparent. I mean, there was this other artificial intelligence example where Amazon made this tool to hire faster Mm -hmm. because Amazon gets so many applicants that a bunch of resumes were basically fed in to it and it would try to decide which people should be passed on for humans to see the resumes to be decided on. But eventually they realized that the algorithm that was going through was sexist. And it was penalizing people for being a woman. So they're looking at women names and at some point started ranking them as as less of a good fit based on that. Mainly, it was the word "woman" that they realized was being penalized. So like, if you had like women's studies, yeah, or like if you did like, oh, I was part of this woman entrepreneurship club. Oh, you'd be more penalized. Nice. Why? What? Why would that happen? I don't. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> and like again, it's probably the human bias that's already set in. 
in possibly the hiring practices where it was being taught. It had to be taught first, like which resumes to react positively to. And then it started making its own adjustments and kind of possibly even magnifying the biases that humans had. But that's the scary thing is like technology usually just accelerates the things we ask it to do, or it can do it so much faster than yeah. we ask it to do. So mm-hmm. in the sense that there's, bias or issues or decisions that need to be made quickly that affect like much bigger things than just like calculations that mm-hmm. it gets spun out of control so much faster. Yeah. Yes. To a greater extent. If Amazon hadn't caught this, we don't know what would have happened. And if we don't know what's going on in these artificial intelligence, we can't necessarily fix it. I mean, the biggest thing that we can do right now is just make sure everyone, especially the people who are working on these things, but also everyone knows that this is a problem that can start affecting us. And actually, it was recently in the news, thanks to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, as she brings everything to the news, and she was basically saying that artificial intelligence is racist. And the backlash immediately was, I think there was one funny tweet that was like, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says algorithms which are powered by math are racist. (laughs) And like that goes a lot to like our instinct is that we think robots, they're unfeeling, they're entirely logical, how could they possibly be anything but making the purest possible decision? We talk mostly about sexism here, but they can also have any of the biases isms. have. I mean, all of the isms. Yeah. It's a problem. Um, so let's, I guess let's recap, because we talked about a bunch of different things. So yeah. AI works in two different ways, I guess, in terms of like language. So the mm-hmm. first one is this good old-fashioned AI, and that's where you're kind of like line-for-line programming what you want the robot to say. And so you're having like a direct human impact on how they're responding to you. Mm -hmm. The second way that's becoming more popular and is like more exciting slash terrifying, depending on which end of the spectrum (laughs) you've had it, is a way where based on a number of like touch points and like history of ingrained like ways, attitudes towards gender, but also in the way language is structured. Oh, is there anything else or any other, like, solutions? Like, how else are we... Is there another way we're talking Is it all about? awareness? Is that... Yeah. It's mostly awareness, and it's mostly awareness on the part of the people who are programming this. One of the more promising examples is that the example I mentioned earlier of Google Translate not being able to handle grammatical gender very well was actually kind of fixed. So right now, if you decide to go and translate over your doctor or any phrases that have this gender, then it will give you both of the translations that are possible. If you look up over your doctor right now, translate to English, it gives you she is a doctor feminine, he is a doctor masculine, and it says translations are gender specific, and you can learn more, and it teaches you a little bit about how this kind of translation works, because Nice. That's great. Yeah. We don't usually applaud Google Translate here, but good job, Google Translate. Yeah, good job. I know. Impressive. It's good. It's now working in, like, I think five different languages. But this is, again, an example where the awareness is really what drove it. Like, this was a very apparent example. It was brought up at different talks, and it was popular online, and that's why it was addressed. But it requires going in and fixing it. If we want to fix possibly larger problems, especially as we let AI become more and more separate from humans and it's learning more and more on its own, we really need to determine right now 
how we can do that. And there are proposals for like creating like a FDA for artificial intelligence. Some sort of oversight. Have, yeah, like a government oversight committee. Google actually just put in a request to have rules for artificial intelligence around the world, but also they were like, not too many rules. <laughs> I mean, considering our Congress people can barely understand how to attach something to an email, <laughs> it's probably going to be a little bit, but... Yeah, yeah, that's going to be a problem, and, like, obviously, the whole Congress system needs to figure out a way to deal with issues that 90-year-old men don't necessarily understand fully. But, yeah, I'll let Kate say for the last, like, why this is such an issue. You know, it seems like being a bit of a scold, but I think we're starting to become more aware of the potential adverse effects of actually just saying, you know, like, well, artificial intelligence, it's so innovative, it's so creative, it's so good. <laughs> and it's like, it can be all of those things, but um, part of what, very much what makes it into all of those things is a, a kind of humanistic and directed context, um, you know, which develops it for particularly for particular human ends. <laughs> so <laughs> I think um, recognizing the risks inherent in that and the, the responsibility upon people building these systems and also upon, you know, people in society, in the societies in which these systems operate um, is, I think, going to lead us into a, a better place and probably with, with better artificial intelligence as well in the longer run. But in the in the short run, it will feel... You know, in the short run, I think it feels sort of like grim. <laughs> Interesting. So, all of that said, how do you guys feel about robots and artificial intelligence? Dylan, are you optimistic? Um, I'm cautiously optimistic. Honestly, I think it'll probably get worse before it gets better. Um, but eventually, as you know, the technology develops, they'll come up with new ways to uh, hopefully eliminate some of that bias. Yeah, personally, I'm I'm optimistic because I kind of feel like I have to be because we're now getting to a point where artificial intelligence is just a part of our lives. It's on our phones. We're interacting with Alexas and Google Translates on a regular basis. It's just going to be more and more a central part of what we have. Right now is when we need to be worried about these things because as it gets bigger and bigger, it's going to get harder and harder to rein in. But I want to just say, like, it could make our lives easier. Someday we'll only be working 10-hour work weeks because the robots will do all the things <laughs> and we'll still get paid because that was the future that the Jet no, the Jetsons had a job. Some future show taught me I should be looking forward to. Why did the Jetsons have a job? They had robots to do literally everything. Maybe it has to do with human purpose. That's why I said 10 hours a week instead of zero hours a week. I want to go somewhere and have someone tell me I'm doing a good job. <laughs> How do you feel, John? Uh, I feel better understanding some of the reasons why AI does what it does. Um, but it is so baked in already, I feel like, in all of our lives that it's a little bit scary. Yeah. I think awareness is super key, and I think there's a lot of really positive things happening just in the way we're using gender in general, embracing the like singular they in a few instances and just the awareness I think is good. But if we can have a 10 hour work week, I for one welcome our robot overlords. So. Yeah. As long as they don't kill us. <laughs> cool, that was super interesting. Thanks Thomas. Thank you Thank Thomas. You.
Multilinguish is brought to you by Babbel, the language app. With Babbel, you can speak a new language with confidence. Convenient lessons are only 15 minutes, and you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and more. So Jen, what's your favorite lesson on Babbel? Well, right now, Dylan, I'm studying French. Um, I wouldn't say the lesson I took this morning was my favorite because it was a really boring grammar lesson. <laughs> Basically, I remember a lot of French vocab, but none of how it fits together, which is a real problem if yeah. I used to like, make conversation in France. I will say my favorite French lesson so far of all time in Babel is the one where it's a dialogue where she's going to a wedding and she knows none of her family, which I find really <laughs> odd me and it's a situation I hope to never find myself in. But that's, I would say the most useful lesson was the, um, the grammar lessons that help you like fit it all together. Grammar is important. And we're offering multilinguish listeners 50% off a three month subscription. New customers can get this offer by visiting babbel.com slash podcast. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash podcast. All right, welcome back. We have the whole team here. Um, again, I'm Jen Jordan. I'm the executive producer at Babbel, and we're going to talk about what you learned this week. David, let's start with you. I learned a lot about the oldest language in the world this week. And I actually learned that that's a kind of silly question to ask. I didn't realize, but when you think about the oldest language in the world, it's not that languages that we speak today, natural languages, just arise out of nowhere. They all have an ancestor from which they're descended. So if you go back farther than the language that you speak today, like English, Spanish, whatever, you trace the roots of those languages, you can actually go all the way back in history to the, the origin of language itself. And there is a lot, of, a lot of debate about what this is. Maybe it's some language like Proto-Indo-European, which is like a reconstructed language that takes into account all the rules of language change and, and grammar shifts to try to reconstruct what people were speaking in 3500 BCE. But you could cl you could claim that that's the oldest language in the world uh, because other languages kind of spiraled off from that. Uh, but you could also trace back to see where you find, or from, from what points in history you find um, writings or, or recorded histories of language. So. Sumerian cuneiform, for example, is from around 3000 BCE, maybe a little bit earlier, but no one speaks Sumerian today and no one really uses cuneiform. So classifying the oldest language, it's both, like I said, a silly question because language itself, like all languages are pretty much the same age if you think of language itself as a concept, but you can also try to figure out like what is what forms of language existed the longest period of time ago whether or not they're still alive today. So it's, it's a complicated question, one that doesn't have an exact answer. I have a question. Okay. You mentioned reconstructed languages. Is that like thinking about spoken languages that you're trying to make into a written form or what does that actually mean? So from what I understand, you take spoken languages today, you know what their sound systems, sound systems are, how they're pronounced in the rules that govern their phonology, sometimes their grammar, but it's mostly about what words sound like. And if you study how those have changed um, over time, so like the Germanic vowel shifts that gave rise to, um, or maybe not the vowel shifts, but consonant shifts that gave rise to different sounds in English and Dutch that come from German or from Germanic, but didn't change in German, um, you know that there's a certain set of rules that govern how consonants change over generations. So if you kind of reverse that rule and you and you accept it as true um, as a rule that just kind of governs how language works, you go backwards and then you can kind of figure out what words would have sounded like 3,000 years ago. I mean, it takes a lot of digging and, oh my God. and 
data analysis and um, all that sort of fun technical stuff. But you, in theory, are able to kind of predict, or not really predict, but um, anti-predict, like back in time, what languages would have sounded like um, with these rules in reverse. Does that make sense? Yeah. So wait, so what is the oldest language in the world? I don't know. There's no answer. The answer is that there is no answer. That's one the whole point of my article. I think it's kind of a tease, actually, because I... I'm I, really I, angry about this. Yeah, me too. I actually wanted to have a clear, definite answer to present to the people. I know everyone is just <laughs> waiting at the edge of their seat to find out. But written systems, do they count as spoken language? Because we, we don't know what Sumerian really sounded like, even though we can try to approximate it. Um, and what would it mean for someone to speak Sumerian today? So if they did, like if we could maybe resurrect Sumerian and learn how to speak it, Maybe that would be considered the oldest language, but I'll, and I'll wrap this up. But another cool example, <laughs> I just think it's a really cool question is Hebrew. So Hebrew as a, wasn't really spoken as anyone's native language or mother tongue for centuries, um, for maybe about the fourth century CE up into the 18th century CE. But with the, the creation of the state of Israel, which has Israeli or modern Hebrew as its um, official language, the language has been brought back from its like liturgical and religious context um, into a more colloquial form. So does that mean that Hebrew is a really old language or just the form it exists in today? Is that a completely separate variant dialect of Hebrew that you can't really claim is the same as ancient Hebrew? Just big questions that make it, my point is that it's really hard to figure out what is the oldest language to classify it. You could have just said, I don't know. <laughs> I did, I did. And then that wasn't good enough, for me at least. I As you've been talking, I've just heard like, do, 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 do. what did you learn this week? Um, I learned that it was possible to create language-driven content around the current Mary Kondo craze. <laughs> Your girl. She's my girl. What can't you con Mari? Um, you can Kanmari anything if you want to, if you really try hard enough. <laughs> um, so I decided to write an article about how one will go about Mary Kondoing your language studies because her name is now functionally a verb in 2019. Um, and so some of the advice that I gave was, you know, you could sort of apply those same exact methods to any like tangible tools that you use to study languages. So for example, you might still have like your high school or college Spanish textbook and maybe it's working for you. And if so, that's great. But like also just because like it was the first uh, learning method you were exposed to doesn't mean that you, you have to keep using it forever. Especially now that, like, you know, we have app-based language learning available to us. Um, so one of the things you can do is to just sort of, like, lay out all of your tools in front of you, hold them in your hands, try to figure out if these things are still doing it for you. You know, obviously, like, not everything about learning has to spark joy because there's also discipline involved. But, like, I think that, you know, your body kind of knows when something is sort of, like, helping you or not. Um, another approach that you can take is to sort of ditch any vocabulary that's not sparking joy for you. And by that, I mean, Ooh, I like this one. Don't, <laughs> don't uh, waste time struggling through like sports vocabulary if you have no interest in talking about soccer. There's really no, like you're an adult now, you can pick and choose what you need to learn. Um, right. <laughs> and actually this is a method that a lot of like polyglots recommend is that like, you know, just sort of like narrow it down to the words that you think you wanna use. 
Um, I love that you could be having a conversation in another language, like on a date or something, and they start wanting to talk about sports, and you're just like, file not found. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't learn anything about that. Back to food. I did that in English, though. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, up football? No. Yeah, 404 error. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's fascinating. And then obviously, like, the final one is also just like, you know, if the language you're studying isn't bringing you joy anymore, be honest. Like, you know, it's okay to sometimes, like, study language for six months and decide that it's not the one that you want to, like, commit to long term. You know, I kind of compared it to relationships and dating because it's <laughs> February and I'm apparently the, the love guru. Yes. So. Our senior love correspondent. Dylan, what did you learn this week? Um, so speaking of uh, commitments and dating... Um, I dug into dating apps in other countries because I wanted to know what that looked like. Um, so can you guys guess what the most popular dating app in the world is? Tinder. Close, but no. No. eHarmony. No. Plenty of fish. No. Okay. Okay. Coffee meets bagel. (laughs) You're all wrong. Um, so Tinder's number two. The number one app is actually Badoo. That was a trick what? question. <laughs> that is not a trick question. Isn't that a search engine? Uh, no. It's fun. a dating app. <laughs> uh, it it's a search for engine for people. <laughs> yes. What have I been using it for? Search engine for love. Uh, so it has almost 400 million users worldwide. Uh, Tinder has about 50 million globally. Um, but it kind of depends on the region on which apps are used more. So... Obviously, we know that Tinder is very popular in the U.S. Um, it's also very popular in Mexico and Canada. But um, once you move down further into South America, um, Badu really picks up in popularity. Um, another up-and-coming um, app in the U.S. and Mexico for Latin Americans is Chispa, which means spark in Spanish. Um, and it's actually owned by the Match Group, which owns Tinder. Um, but it's a partnership with Univision, um, and it is in Spanish and English. And uh, again, it's all about the swiping. And basically, I found that as you move around the world, most of the apps it involve swiping. Surprise, surprise. Um, and my personal favorite is an app. It's a Swedish app um, that's also available in Finland and starting to spread a little more. But it's called Happy Pancake. Um, which is probably the best dating app name I could ever come up with. Um, And it prides itself on being completely free. There's no, like, extra added charges. Like, Tinder has limited swipes that it can charge you for more. It's very Scandinavian of it to be free. Yes. (laughs) And also, it has a search function. Your tax dollars pay for it. (laughs) Exactly. Um, It also has a search function that allows you to find people with similar interests. Um, So that's a nice extra extra component that's not just about looks. Search for people. Because, like, I feel like half the reason people use dating apps is just, like, I want to see which people I know are on here. (laughs) Um, you mean by name? Yeah. I don't think so. It's like Dylan. I think it's like, (laughs) (laughs) ah, left. (laughs) It's like the population of one city in an entire country. I'm pretty sure you're going to recognize some people. (laughs) Yeah. You better swipe right on me. Um, but, and then the last one I'll mention is in France. It's called Oh, French pronunciation. Here we go. Adopte un mec. 
Sorry, friend. Sorry. Um, which translates to adopt a guy. Um, and it's a popular French app that was made to empower women. So basically, it's free for women. They charge men to send message requests they call charms to women and women can choose to either they have all the power so they can either accept it or reject it and if they accept it then you can have a conversation so it's like bumble right more like bumble yeah it almost kind of makes me think like it, it, like they're kind of like um, recontextualizing this as like you're adopting a child that you then yeah. have to take care of. Yeah, isn't that what dating a man is all about? Have you ever seen those like those grow a boyfriend things that you stick in water and they like that's what it yes. reminds me of. That's basically uh, what it is. So uh, yeah, that's uh, dating around the world. I have a question. Yeah, did you ever see any research about or do any research about Facebook's new dating platform? I think they're going to unveil something. What? It's coming soon, allegedly. I don't know when exactly, but... That's scary to me. I don't want... I feel like Facebook knows too much about me already. Yeah. That's why it'll find you the perfect, most compatible partner. Wow, this sounds like an, a Black Mirror episode. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned. It's coming. Thomas, what did you learn this week? I learned... This wasn't actually from research, but just I happened to go to a museum, and there was a fascinating exhibit. I went to the Museum of Chinese in America, which is a smaller than most museum in Chinatown in New York. And they had this whole exhibit I didn't know about in advance about the Chinese typewriter, which is not something I'd thought about before. Because, so you've got your English computer typewriter, or I guess any Latin alphabet, where because there are only 26 characters plus other stuff, like it's easy to fit everything on there, but because Chinese languages, it's not all one language, obviously. But since they have like a logosyllabic system, which means basically each symbol means a syllable, then there are like, I think, like there's a huge number, but according to what I read, like an quote unquote educated person will know about 4,000 symbols. And that is not easy to fit onto a typewriter. <laughs> no. And they basically. <laughs> yeah, and we basically talked about like all these different techniques that have been used to try to create a usable Chinese typewriter. I mean, one of them was just like, let's make a really, really big keyboard, which <laughs> like looks massive. <laughs> and there was an interesting section that was about like the public perception of this, because apparently during like the 80s and 90s, it was common to make fun of the Chinese typewriter. Like, MC Hammer has a dance where he's, like, moving his legs back and forth. It's actually, like, the Hammer Time dance, but it's also called, like, the Chinese typewriter. That is so... What? Yeah, yeah that seems, like, it, wrong on a number of levels. It's it odd. <laughs> and, like, there was a Simpsons joke about Chinese typewriters. It's always weird. And there were other techniques that they used, like, trying to assign... I don't think this was for regular typing, but, like, for a different kind. But they tried to assign a number to each of the symbols, and then you translated the number into the keyboard. So you have to memorize all of these symbols, thousands of symbols, and then yeah. you have to memorize the associated number with yes. them, and that's how you type. I think it was actually Morse code that they were trying to do, like trying oh to translate to Morse code so that you had to give a number, and then you could put the number in through Morse code. Oh my god. Which that's very complicated. made it more difficult. So yeah. how do you actually, like, what does a typical laptop look like then? I mean, nowadays, it's like, no, it's easier I and mean, they had a, an iPad set up that you could try there's basically two techniques that can be used you can either just physically draw this syllable you can physically draw the symbols 
which was not easy for me to do. <laughs> or there's the technique of like using the English letters or the Latin alphabet to have the equivalent of the symbols, and that's kind of, and then it translates it into the symbol on your screen for you. Interesting. So it's kind of like I keep saying English mainly because like English companies are why the, this typewriter got so popularized that basically now everyone is forced to use it, even though it's not necessarily the best of language, but it's interesting. That sounds more harrowing than T9 typing, which <laughs> was a really impressionable time of my life, so. All right, What so, did you learn, Jen? <laughs> thanks, Dylan. Um, so this week, I read a great article from our colleagues in Berlin, and it's talking about the crossover or the influence of Arabic in Spanish. Um, so apparently there are hundreds of words that are influenced by Arabic in Spanish, in Spanish language, and this goes way back. There's obviously a lot of history that I won't go into, but basically the Moorish occupation of the Iberian Peninsula, way back when, in like 711, back in like the three-digit <laughs> three years. <laughs> Love that story. Um, yeah. It's also my birthday. Um, anyway, so... Um, because of that, over time, a lot of the Arabic or like pre-Arabic even like words ended up being infiltrated or like morphed into the Spanish language. And I'm looking for the actual example they give. Um, another common Arabism is the fusion of al with nouns in Spanish. So al is basically an article, so like the, and so a lot of words about agriculture and a lot of words about food um, ended up having A-L um, as the prefix and then sort of like merged into the word. Um, and there's actually like a ton of examples um, like in- lunch. Um, mm -hmm. I was thinking that too. <laughs> yeah, um, there's it's a lot of examples. Thinking about lunch. <laughs> so um, I thought that was super interesting and something that I wouldn't normally think about. And uh, History and language are fascinating. Very <laughs> anyway, thanks everyone. Thank um, you. Have a good week. Bye. Bye. Multilinguish is produced by the content team at Babbel. We are Thomas Moore Devlin, David Duchin, Steph Koifman, Dylan Lyons, and I'm Jen Jordan. Ribbon Vilash makes us sound good. Our logo was designed by Ali Zhao. You can read more about this episode's topic and even more on Babbel Magazine. Just visit babbel.com slash magazine. Say hi on social media by finding us at Babbel USA, all one word. Finally, if you like what you heard, please rate and review this podcast. We really appreciate it. Siri. How do I use Siri? Yeah, hold down. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. Are you serious? Home button. My home button's more. <laughs> uh, um, do you have your phone? Do you have Hey Siri installed? Hey Siri? Yes. <laughs> Mine's a British <laughs> man, though. That voice is, yeah, change the voice. I don't know how. They don't want you to be a British man anymore. Siri, I'm not sure I understand. <laughs>